At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? So great to be here worshiping with all of you. I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day this last week. Uh, My wife and I were originally planning to go out to eat, like at an actual restaurant, you know. Uh, But unfortunately, that didn't work out. Um, But I still spoiled her, you know. We still got flowers and chocolates, and we had a wonderful Valentine's Day at home. I actually brought a picture of our V-Day. We could throw that up on the screen. This is our special lady in the tramp kind of moment, you know. Um, And just to throw you a little curveball here, I brought another picture of of a different V-Day celebration. We can put the next one up. This one's from 1945. Uh, Except the V does not stand for Valentine. It stands for victory. And technically it's V-E day because it's victory in Europe because this is the day that officially marked the end of World War II, right? As, Hitler's, as Nazi uh, Germany, Hitler's Nazi Germany signed an unconditional surrender. And as we look back on, on those events that, that were leading up to this V-Day, this Victory Day, there's one specific event that, that becomes a catalyst in this fight uh, that leads to this victory. It's a day when around 1,000 ships, uh, the largest armada to ever set sail, carried some 200,000 soldiers across the English Channel to France, and wave upon wave of soldiers stormed the beaches at Normandy. And of course, I'm talking about uh, D-Day. Many people who study these events and look back on this would say that that was the day. That was the day that the war was won. D-Day was the day when this victory was secured that with an ever-increasing military presence on the ground, with uh, the relentless crushing of German factories from our airborne infantry, uh, the hindrance of German supply lines, that all these things meant that the difference between D-Day and V-Day was just a matter of time. It was not a, a question of if victory was coming, it was simply when, that it was inevitable. Now, we have the privilege of being able to look back on these events uh, with this perspective, but think of it from the perspective of those who were fighting in the war, those who were there when it was happening, because I'll tell you, they were still dodging bullets left and right. I mean, there were people that were injured and wounded all around them. Blood was spilled, and in fact, many lost their lives in this fight. The dangers were very real. They, they were, there were many, they were everywhere for the people involved in this war. And I mention all this because there's just something that resembles the Christian experience. Because God himself has invaded history. He became one of us in the person of Jesus to save us, to rescue us. And in his life, death, resurrection and ascension. He has fought the decisive battle of the war. D-Day has already taken place at the cross of Christ. 
He said, it is finished. The battle has been won. Final victory has been secured because our sins have been atoned for. We have been gifted with Christ perfect righteousness. We've been born again. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've been empowered by the Spirit of God living inside of us so that we can actually walk in obedience to God our Father. Woo! Hallelujah and amen. Listen, that's amazing. But if we're being honest, it doesn't always feel like that, does it? Because even though Christ has already claimed victory on the cross, we are still very much in the heat of battle, aren't we? We are waiting for the day when this final victory comes. But until that day comes, we find ourselves dodging bullets of temptation, left and right. Sometimes people are hit, they are injured, and they need our help, and ultimately, Unfortunately, there are even casualties along the way. Because just as Hitler, knowing that his time was up, insisted on launching a last great hurrah at the cost of so many lives, Satan, knowing that his time is short, seems to be launching a furious rampage against the people of God, seeking to do whatever damage that he can. And as the people who are in the trenches so to speak, of this battle, of this war. We feel that. We feel that. It can be so overwhelming. It can be so exhausting at times that we just want to throw our hands up and say, what now? <laughs> what now? And yet, there is something about knowing that the battle has already been won that we already have final victory in Jesus, that influences the way that we live now, here, today, giving us a hope that transcends our circumstances and allowing us to persevere until the end, until that day comes. And so that's why we've titled this sermon series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today. So if you would please join me in your Bibles. Uh, or your smart devices, your, your iPads, your phones, fire up a Bible app if you got one. But find yourself with me in the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24. While you find your place, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context to help you understand where we are in this story. Because Jesus is in the midst of a battle. He is in the midst of some spiritual warfare. He's leading up to the week's that he is going to give his life on the cross. And so there is a lot that is weighing on his shoulders. And we read about a series of judgments then that Jesus pronounces. We read about the cleansing of the temple. Uh, or another way of looking at it is, is the cursing of the temple because it's immediately followed by a parallel that's found in the cursing of the fig tree. That Jesus comes to a fig tree, sees that it does not bear any fruit, and so he curses it. And in the same way, Jesus, the Messiah, comes to the temple in Jerusalem, finds that it does not bear any good fruit, and so he curses it. All of this tension builds and builds until we finally get to chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus directly confronts the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he has some pretty choice words with them. Woe to you. 
you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. The blood of the righteous is on your hands. But Jesus expresses his distress over this. It it pains him deeply to see this. He says, "I, I would have loved to gather you together the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. But instead, you've rejected all the prophets that have been sent to you, and you reject me, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. And so now this place will be left desolate. And Jesus turns around, and he leaves the temple. Now, this is where our passage begins in chapter 24. Jesus and the disciples are now heading up to the Mount of Olives, from which there is a magnificent view of the temple in all its beauty. And some of his disciples draw his attention to this, pointing out how beautiful it is. And, they, and Jesus looks and says, yeah, it's, it's nice, but it's all going to be destroyed. In fact, not one stone is going to be left on another. And so naturally, after Jesus drops this bomb on them, they have some questions. Specifically, two questions. They say, when is this going to happen? And what is the sign of this judgment so that we know when it is coming? And so Jesus, like a general, begins preparing his troops for war. He begins preparing his followers for the events that are about to transpire, for everything that is about to happen. He begins with a word of caution to his disciples, saying, don't be led astray. There are many false teachers who are going to try and come in my name. And terrible things are going to happen. Nation will rise against nation. There are going to be wars, famines, and earthquakes. But despite all of this, do not despair. Do not lose hope. You must persevere. You must endure during this physical and spiritual battle that is about to come. So don't be surprised when suffering comes, because it will. And that's the first truth that Jesus shares with his disciples as this discourse continues. He says, you should know that suffering will come. should know that suffering will come. Let's read this together. Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. It says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, what Jesus is describing is the coming judgment of Israel and the fate of the temple in Jerusalem. And the phrase that he uses, the the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation, it finds its roots in the Old Testament book of Daniel, just as I said, at least four instances, but hence the, the reference here, right? Let the reader understand, that is, let the reader of Daniel understand this, and so I'll read just a couple of these for you. Daniel 9, uh, 27 says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. 
Daniel 11, 31 and 32, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, all of these things that the prophet Daniel prophesied about happened. It actually took place before Jesus even came in 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes takes over the temple. He sets up an altar to Zeus, a false god. He brings in pigs, unclean animals to the Jewish people, and he sacrifices them on the altar. Believe it or not, he even turns portions of the temple into a brothel before ultimately enslaving the Jewish people for a period of time. And so it was an appalling desecration of the holy place of this temple like the people had never seen or experienced before. And so when Jesus describes what is about to happen, the things that are going to take place as an abomination of desolation, these are the Old Testament images that he is bringing to mind. Today, today it'd be like someone prophesying about the future and saying there's gonna be a 9-11 type event. That wordage brings all kinds of imagery into our mind of what happened on that day. And of course, as we mentioned last week, what Daniel uh, prophesied about did come to pass when the temple was completely destroyed in AD 70. So when, what um, Jesus prophesied about in Matthew now then does come to pass in AD 70, 40 years or so after his crucifixion. And it's just, it's difficult to describe just how devastating this was to the Jews. You have to remember that in, in the Old Testament Jewish mind, Jerusalem was the holy city. But it was the holy city because it was where the temple was. And specifically, not just the temple, but it was because that's where the Holy of Holies was within the temple. And within the Holy of Holies was the very presence of God. And all of that is going to be destroyed Jesus says, now there's not going to be a temple. There's going to be no holy of holies. There's going to be no place to sacrifice animals to the Lord. We are talking about the entire Old Testament way of relating to God gone. And that's why Jesus says in verse 21 that this will be a tribulation like the world has never seen before and will never see again. And Jesus says, when this happens... Flee, get out, A-S-A-P, do not delay is how it is said. And this is uh, what is detailed in the following verses, right? As we look at 17 through 20, God's people are to flee and there's no time to pack, right? Don't think about going and grabbing your cell phone and your charger and all these things from the house. Don't get snacks for the road. Verse 18, don't turn back to get your coat. You're working out in the field. It gets hot. You take your coat off. And then this happens. Don't go get your coat first. Just leave. Get out of there. Verse 19 expresses sympathy for women who are pregnant or nursing their child because obviously this would slow them down. Verse 20 says, pray that your flight might not be on a day like today. <laughs> when it is winter, when it is cold out, or on the Sabbath, which also brings up a couple complications. Jews who were 
uh, obedient to the, the law at that time would have been, only been able to travel a mile or less, hindering their ability to flee. The city gates would have been closed, making it more difficult to escape. And in any case, each of these verses provides a sense of intense urgency. Do not delay. That when you see the desecration of the temple take place, you are to flee as fast as you can. Because not only is the temple going to be destroyed, but the entire city is going to fall captive. And you do not want to be there when this happens. Now, the desecration of the temple is behind us now. Uh, these events that Jesus spoke of have already taken place in their generation, just as he said that it would. But at the same time, we also find ourselves in a similar position. Because we still live in a fallen, broken world that is filled with all kinds of suffering. And so the challenge for us today remains the same, to, to find hope in the middle of all of the suffering. And the hope is not just that our salvation is securely held in the hands of Christ. It is. We rejoice. It is an incredible truth. And we hold on to that. But the question is, how does that truth impact our lives today? And Paul has a, an answer to this question. He shares it in Romans chapter 5. He says this, We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into the hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, as Christ followers, we know that suffering will come. It certainly came to the first century Christians. They had their homes destroyed, their belongings taken away. They were sent into sporting arenas to be torn limb from limb by wild animals while the crowds cheered them on. They were impaled on stakes and burned alive. They were crucified by the hundreds of thousands and lined along the road to and from Rome as a warning. This is what happens to Christians. And yet, it has been documented that they sung hymns as the animals tore them apart in front of the crowds. They prayed for their murderers as they were being burned alive at the stake. They faced death with a peace and a poise that no one had ever seen before. So much so that Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said, the blood of the martyrs is like seed. Because the more they killed and murdered the Christians, the more this movement of Christianity grew. And you understand, this kind of thing is still happening today. We really don't see as much of it in the U.S., but we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are risking everything to follow Jesus. They are risking everything by simply owning a Bible, and yet it is their prized possession. They could be imprisoned or even lose their lives for gathering together like worship, like we are right now, and yet they do so gladly. Why? Why is that? Because God uses these conditions like a fire to purify and to forge his church so that it produces endurance, so that endurance produces character, so that character produces hope, making the church stronger so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And so we can face suffering and hard times when they come because we know that the Spirit of God is actively at work inside of us, sanctifying us, making us more and more like Christ. And just as Jesus trusted God the Father, remaining completely faithful in his suffering, even to the point of death on the cross, we can too. And we see this mentioned in verse 22. That even in the midst of intense suffering, we can trust in the sovereignty of God. We can trust in the sovereignty of God. Let's read this. Uh, Verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So as Jesus describes the terrible days that were about to come, you can imagine how his followers begin to feel right? Their bodies tense up. Fear begins to set in. Their hearts are racing. They're getting sick to their stomach at the thought of all of this that is about to come. And so Jesus inserts this comment to point out that despite what the future holds, despite how bad it seems to get, we can trust in the sovereignty of God. That yes, judgment was coming to Israel, But God was not going to abandon the faithful. He he was going to protect and preserve his people through the judgment. In the midst of the judgment and in his sovereign control, God shortened the days of the war. He cut it short. Now again, (laughs) it probably didn't seem like it to those who were experiencing it, right? Because this battle, this war that Christ foreshadowed was absolutely brutal. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus documents this. He describes the magnitude of the destruction, saying the number of those who were carried captive during the whole war was collected to be 97,000, as was the number that perished during the whole siege, 1,100,000. And yet, the point is this, as terrible and horrific as it was, it could have been worse. You know, we see this theme come up again and again all throughout God's redemptive story, that God desires relationship. He desires uh, a relationship with his people, and so he makes a promise. He makes a covenant, but eventually the people rebel against him in sin, and there is then a punishment or a consequence for their rebellion. But at the same time, it's always coupled with God's grace and his mercy, I love this. Right from the beginning, Adam and Eve sin against God. There are consequences for their rebellion, but at the same time, God promises a redeemer. Sin continues to grow and spread like a cancer amongst God's people until God is so fed up and disgusted that he's going to destroy it all with a flood. But instead, God saves a remnant, a handful of people, Noah and his family. Why? So that God can continue to keep his promise. Jacob and the nation of Israel sin against God, so God allows them to be enslaved by the Egyptians. And yet, 400 some years later, God delivers them out of that. Moses is leading them to the promised land, but while while God is instructing them in how to live and, and live as his people in this promised land, they turn to idols. They sin against God, and so they end up spending 40 years wandering in the desert because of their rebellion. But God does indeed lead them to the promised land, the the land that is flowing with milk and honey. And now here we are, after thousands of years of waiting, and God has finally sent his promised Messiah. 
the Savior of all of God's people in Jesus, and the Jewish religious leaders and the people at large rejected him. And they were plotting his death. And yet we know that even then, even what appeared to be the worst day of human history, when evil appeared to have won by killing the very Son of God, that all of it was a part of God's plan. All of it was a part of God's plan of redemption, and as a part of God's plan, the temple had to be destroyed. Now, we know this. Hebrews chapter 8 describes it like this. I'm going to read a handful of verses leading up to verse 13, starting at 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, in other words, the Old Testament covenant, if it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Listen, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That is what is being described in our passage today. With the destruction of the temple, the old covenant could no longer be practiced the way God had originally prescribed it. But it was because something far better had come through the person and work of Jesus. A better temple, a better prophet, priest, and king, a better covenant for the people of God. And so even when things appear to be their absolute worst, we can trust in the Lord. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. I mean, for most of us, we, we just went through one of the toughest years of our lives. Mentally, physically, spiritually. And there are probably a number of you uh, who, if you're anything like me, <laughs> prayed, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> come swiftly. Come soon. And I just want you to know that that struggle is nothing new. God's people have wrestled with that for ages. Hymns have been written about it. Come, Lord, and tarry not. Bring the long-looked-for day. Why these years of waiting here, these ages of decay? See, when we read something like this, something that says that God will cut suffering short so that we may be preserved and protected, we say, then why is all this wickedness still taking place? Why is all this still happening? Why doesn't Christ return and just end it all already? And that is precisely a question that the first century church really wrestled with. They struggled with this. And so Peter addresses this in his second letter saying, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all 
should reach repentance. And so on one hand, God will not allow his people to be extinguished. He will continue to faithfully preserve them even through intense persecution and suffering. But at the same time, on the other hand, he is patient putting off the final day of judgment so that more and more people would be saved. And this will continue until all of his elect have been prepared for glory. And we can rest in that. We can trust in the sovereignty of God that everything is going to work out according to his good will and purpose. And then the next thing Jesus does is offer a warning. As well as some clarity, he says that we should realize that Jesus' return will be unmistakable. We should realize that Jesus' return will be unmistakable. Now let's read this, starting in 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonder, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the upper rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So now, Jesus is once again warning his disciples of these false teachers these false prophets and people that are claiming to be the Christ. You know, you know what this is describing, right? This is what we would call today false news, right? There are two things that I've noticed about false news in, in all the time leading up to this. There are always, first of all, there's always elements of truth involved, right, the, to make these false reports more believable. It's not something completely outlandish, something that is impossible to believe. Uh, instead, it has to do with very real things. They just twist the truth to suit their narrative. And the second thing I've noticed is that there are always certain audiences that are, that are being targeted with false news, right? They're telling them things that they actually want to hear, in order to gain a following and in order to gain influence over those people. That is exactly what Jesus says is going to happen. That these are Jewish people that are experiencing this persecution and they desperately want to believe in reports of a new Messiah, specifically a military Messiah who will deliver them, who will restore the nation of Israel. The audience is there. And so people are gonna report Look, there's the Christ. Oh, hey, there he is. Some may even perform these great signs and wonders, Jesus says. But do not believe them. Do not believe in these so-called messiahs. It is fake news. Do not believe it. Why? Because in stark contrast to these false messiahs, when Jesus returns, he will not need to be sought out in some obscure place like the wilderness or a hidden upper room. He will not need to convince people by performing miraculous signs and wonders because his return will be like a flash of lightning illuminating the entire sky. No one is going to miss it. On that day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
But you see, false teachers, they continue to come around. They continue to show up, even in our world today, whether it's promising health, wealth, and prosperity, or any other kind of false doctrine. False prophets still come up and appear today with prophecies about the presidency, the coronavirus, and the end of the world. We do not give into it. We do not entertain these things. Jesus says, you have no need to worry. Times will get tough. Suffering will come. But everything is held in the sovereign hands of God. So there is no need to concern yourself with doomsday prophecies and trying to figure out when the Christ is going to return. Because when he does, Jesus talks about this later, starting in verse 36. He says, no one is going to know when it's going to happen. No one will know what to look for. It will be without warning. It will be completely unexpected, a complete surprise. All we need to know is that he is coming. Jesus will return to collect his bride, the church, and renew and restore all things. And we are still here waiting for the magnitude and the majesty of his glory to be revealed on that day. But in the meantime, what do we do? What do we do while we look for that day? Saints of the church, as representatives of Christ, as heralds of King Jesus, we fight. We fight the good fight. We fight in the war, even though suffering will come, even though we may be labeled as hateful, bigoted, and oppressive. We fight. And so we fight for the lives of the unborn, the disabled, and the elderly. We fight against the horrors of human trafficking and rape. We fight for racial reconciliation and equality among people. We fight for justice for those who have been harmed. We stand in the face of evil and we fight. And we have confidence to do so. And to persevere until the end, no matter what, knowing that Christ has already won the war. Friends, let's not lose our perspective in the trenches of this spiritual battle. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. And remember, we are living between the already and the not yet. We are living between the D-Day at the cross and the victory day that is ahead. It is assured by it. It's not a question of if, just when. It's just a matter of time. And so we struggle today in hope and in absolute certainty of the final victory that is to come, where the redemption that Christ has already secured for us will be fully experienced with him in glory forever. Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father? God, we thank you for the gift of your word today. What an incredible reminder of the new covenant that you have made with us through your son, Jesus. A reminder that even though we are fallen, sinful people who are unfaithful to you, that you continue to remain utterly and completely faithful to us. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the encouraging words that Jesus offered his disciples as they were about to face the most difficult time of their lives. And we have difficulty fully wrapping our mind around this and, and appreciating the fear and the pain that they experienced in these 
uncertain times. But Father, I know that there are people here today who are scared, who are fearful of the unknown. There are people here who are tired. They are run down and they are exhausted from fighting these spiritual battles. God, there are some who have been hurt. They feel like they're a failure, like they're just bleeding out on the battleground and they're not going to make it. So Father, pour out your spirit on us, we pray. May we feel your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness anew. Wash over our hearts. Refresh our souls with these encouraging words. May they minister to us today. May they offer encouragement to us today, stirring up within us the desire to fight, to remain strong, to continue to persevere through the trials and tribulations of this world. God, thank you for cutting short a time of the coronavirus, for for providing vaccines faster than we ever thought possible. Surely things could have been far worse. God, we thank you for that. God, give us the wisdom to flee from temptation when temptation comes, keeping our attention on Jesus resting in the knowledge that you are sovereign and in control over all things and that you are actively working all things for our good and for your glory. God, it's in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit we pray these things today. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.